tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today's podcast is going to be a replay of a webinar that I did called Strategies for Reducing Cat Population. I did it back in February, and I thought that our listeners might be interested in it. I touch upon a concept called the Community Cat Pyramid, also talk about different ideas on how you can think about reducing the cat population in your community. So I hope you will enjoy the show. And if you're interested in watching the video, it is available up on our website, our Community Cat Pyramid page, You can check out that link on our show notes or just search Community Cat Pyramid on the Community Cats Podcast website, which is communitycatspodcast.com. Thank you all for subscribing to the show, being part of it, and feel free to share. We'd love you to share the show with others. So enjoy the show, provide feedback. I'd love to hear from everybody. Thank you all, and hopefully you're having a good early fall. Take care. All right, so it feels very strange for me because usually I'm introducing others, but what I'm going to do is we're going to get this show on the road here. So it's very different to be the presenter, but I'm enjoying it. It's going to be fun. So I hope you all enjoy strategies to reduce outdoor cat populations, and I look forward to all of your questions. Here we are with uh, the strategies to reduce outdoor cat populations, and this is a segment that was from the online cat conference that we held back in January of 2023. And Unfortunately, we ran out of time there, so we are doing this extra special session to be able to learn more about how to reduce our outdoor cat populations. This was the third presentation in a panel that we had with Mike Phillips and Sheila Massey, and those sessions are recorded and part of the online cat conference for 2023, and you can access those recordings by going to the communitycatspodcast.com and get those recordings. They are available for purchase. And then over time, hopefully we will be able to release them to the general public. All right. So for those of you who don't know uh, about me and what I do here at the Community Cats podcast, it's always good to make sure everybody knows what all I do in the various different hats that I wear. By the way, I'd like to say a happy World Spay Day to everybody today. You know, with that all being said here at the Community Cats podcast, We started in 2016. We have almost 500 podcast episodes. And really, I started the podcast as a result of having over 400 names of organizations that were interested in starting a TNR program back in 2014, 2015, when I ran a mentoring program through the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. And it became obvious to me that working one-on-one with organizations was great. It was wonderful. But I wasn't able to help everybody. And that was always really an important part of some of the things that I did being involved in animal welfare since 1994 was I always wanted to be able to help others and facilitate their growth as an organization to be able to help cats in their community. That's really the main reason I started the Community Cats podcast was really to help those organizations in addition to the folks that feel like they're isolated and all alone and out there as just individual trappers and no one else is interested in helping them, 
I envision somebody out there with that drop truck out there at two o'clock in the morning, drinking their Dunkin' Donuts, you know, waiting in the car around the corner, just waiting to see if they can pull that string, get that drop trap down or get the cat in the trap. And they feel like they're the only one out there caring about that cat, trying to trap that cat. And there's so many of us out there right now that are trying to help cats. And we are a community. We are a village. It's just we're not aware of all the actions that we're all doing together. So, you know, I want to help folks and say, you know, hey, you're doing a great job. We're here for you. We're cheering you on. And we understand what you're going through because it's not easy. It's not easy being out there day in and day out. So I wear a lot of different hats. Uh, I'm involved in a lot of different organizations. I love learning. I love hearing from other people. And so I'm involved with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. I am back involved with them as their treasurer. I'm also president of an organization called Positive Pantry, where we provide pet food to families that need assistance with pet food. And we cover the state of Vermont and Massachusetts. And we use systems to be able to distribute food all around the state. We're small, but we're mighty. We cover a large territory and we have a great partnership with the Vermont Food Bank, which distributes food to 120 different food pantries around around the state. And then in Massachusetts, we have a different model, but we also cover about an equal amount of food shelves or food pantries, depending on what you call them. And then I'm a director of strategy and board treasurer at the United Spay Alliance. And as you will see through this presentation, I'm all about spay neuter for reducing your outdoor cat population. So more on that coming through later. But um, I think that spay neuter advocacy is extremely critical. We are at a critical turning point right now with regards to access to spay neuter. And so I'm putting as much of my time and effort on that topic as possible going forward. I'm also a treasurer for the Vermont Humane Federation and also involved with the Shelter Medicine Committee at Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University and an advisor to Massachusetts Animal Coalition. So I'm all about working together. I'm all about collaborating. I love sandboxes and I hope you all do too. And thank you again for joining me today in this sandbox here. So our goal and our focus, and this is one thing that I would ask every organization to sit down and have a conversation with their board of directors, is to really acknowledge and understand that you want to reduce the number of free roaming cats and kittens in your community. I've had many conversations with people where they believe that you will never be able to reduce your population of free roaming cats and kittens. And I don't think every organization necessarily needs to have that goal, but I think every community should have that goal is to aspire to provide the services needed in order to reduce the number of free roaming cats and kittens in your community. I worked significantly intensely in these three projects, Newburyport, Lowell, and Fitchburg. Newburyport, Massachusetts, which I have included this handout of a peer-reviewed study that was done with the situation in uh, Newburyport, Massachusetts. So in Newburyport, we started the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society in 1992. And it was as a result of the situation in 1990, we had over 300 cats living on the Newburyport waterfront. We had a situation where a gentleman went into a boat and smashed up a group of cats with a baseball bat because they had been living in his boat all winter long. We also had a situation where there was a litter of kittens that had tested positive for rabies. And we had a situation in 1990 where an organization came in, they trapped a group of cats that were living out of a dumpster 
And then by 1992, the same number of cats were living in that dumpster. The organization was asked to come back to do the same thing. They said we wouldn't come back because it didn't work. So you have to figure something out. So Newburyport actually was founded. One of the founding members was the president of the Chamber of Commerce because the number of cats on the waterfront were impacting the travel industry, which was very important to Newburyport. So there was a group of concerned citizens that came together with the Newburyport Chamber of Commerce. Our first phone number was the Chamber of Commerce's phone number, and they had an office cat. And many of the businesses in the Newburyport area had uh, shop cats, bookstore cats. Uh, there was a framer's shop. They had a cat. Several of the restaurants had cats out in the back behind their restaurants. And so in 1992, they started an organized trap neuter return program where there were 14 feeding stations and TNR took place. 300 cats in that first year, they pulled 125 cats and kittens off the waterfront. Many of them were put up for adoption. We had two brand new veterinarians in that community and they had just read a study from the MSPCA or ANGEL down in Boston in uh, 1989, they did a study on early age spay neuter. Both of these veterinarians were very progressive and interested in doing spay neuter uh, as young as eight weeks of age or two pounds. And so all the kittens were pulled off the waterfront. They were put in foster care. They were adopted out. So immediately we saw a 35% reduction in cats in that community, in that region, in that area. And then over time, as volunteers continued to take care of the, the cats, some of those cats did come in and get adopted out. Other cats remained. Um, and spent the rest of their days there. I'll fast forward through to 2008, and the last cat passed away, and all 14 feeding stations were closed. And at this point in time, Newburyport does not have a free roaming cat situation. There was an interesting uh, time where we actually had Brian Cordes was doing some research on free roaming cat populations, and he came up to Newburyport to see the feeding stations. And it was, I want to say 2006, 2007, and he was very let down because he didn't see any cats. You know, there just weren't enough cats to come out and get video. It was a lot of video of empty feeding stations. It showed we were doing something right at the time. So you can do trap new return in such a way that you will reduce your outdoor cat population significantly. Two other cases and communities that I was involved with and worked on and I'll just give you some scale here. Newburyport is a community of about 17,000 people. So it's a very small community, small town. We did expand our service area for TNR into 10 service area towns, which covered about a population of 125,000 people. Lowell, Massachusetts is a much more urban area. It itself is about um, 100,000 people in population. We were invited into Lowell by the Lowell Humane Society, which had just changed management. This was back around 2007, 2008. We were just starting our mobile spay neuter clinic called the Catmobile. And at that point in time, we offered free spay neuter for owned cats, for the residents of Lowell, as well as free spay neuter, obviously, for any community cats. And there was a subgroup that was created called Lowell TNR, which was a pilot program of the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, which they then became their own 501c3. They spun off of us after a couple of years and became their own 501c3. And then once the cat overpopulation situation in Lowell got under control, their work was much lighter. And so they merged in with the Lowell Humane Society. And now the TNR efforts are run through the Lowell Humane Society. So 
within five years, Lowell Humane went from a situation where there were cats and kittens stacked up in cages all throughout their building, multiple layers of cages, kitten overpopulation. It was, it was really what they were dealing with was incredibly crazy and overwhelming. And I had a resident come up to me and say, there's no way you're going to get the Lowell population situation under control. There's a million cats here. There's just no way you're ever going to do this. And this was a concerned citizen. They were out there feeding cats like crazy. And within five years, there was such a substantial reduction that now Lowell is taking in kittens from other communities. And, you know, they went from like overwhelming with kittens to like kittens. What are kittens? We don't know what they are anymore. So it was a really intense project that we did, but they hit about stabilization after about five years. So fast forward about 2013 to 2014 and their conversation about overpopulation in their shelters switched from cats to more things like guinea pigs, bunny rabbits, some of the littles that's become their challenge now. And unfortunately, fast forward to now. And I think a lot of the big dogs are a large part of the, the stress on the more traditional humane society. Fitchburg, I'm going to talk quickly about Fitchburg. It was a community where the uh, Fitchburg Board of Health actually reached out to the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society directly and asked us for assistance to come into that community and help them. And what I did with both Lowell and Fitchburg is we would have monthly meetings. So we would go in person into the community and really try and collaborate with folks. And we would have city councilors, we would have mayors join us, we'd have a variety of different people join us collaboratively to help make this process happen. But this, the starter for this was Board of Health, as well as the fire department. The fire department was extremely supportive of our efforts in Fitchburg, so much so that they would let us utilize one of their bays and make it a heated bay. And we would drive our cat mobile up there and we would have cats in recovery in the heated bay and do spay days for, for ferals there. And we would get grant funding the community foundation in that area is extremely progressive and really helpful with regards to animal welfare funding. They've been a true supporter and sponsor for our efforts in the Fitchburg, Lemonstern, Gardner area. That was a success and it had more of a public partnership. And we continue to have a very strong relationship there. And the number of cats and kittens in that community that are of urgent need and that sort of overwhelming feeling the numbers have definitely gone down. The one challenge that we had in Fitchburg is we didn't have like a centralized animal shelter to be able to look at our, our data, our information, to compare it to intakes, to use intakes as your measure of success. So our measures of success is a little bit different. It was more of like, what are the complaint calls coming in? And those numbers have substantially dropped during our time period there. A nonprofit also sprung out of our efforts there called Fitchburg Friends of Felines, and they continue to operate today. So based on the experiences that I had working in these three scenarios or these three, I don't know, case studies, communities, um, I created what was called the Community Cat Pyramid. And I think many of you have seen the Community Cat Pyramid, but I think it's worth stressing and looking at it. And ideally in my dream world, everybody would print this out and put it up on their refrigerators next to their TNR certificate and look at it and remind themselves if at the end of the day, your organization's desire is to have a reduced outdoor cat population, we need to kind of keep an eye on the prize. And when I say an organization, I don't necessarily mean it has to be one group. It could be a collaborative effort of multiple groups. So you can have an organization that deals with neonate kittens 
be part of this package within the community. It's But the important part is making sure that the geographic community has access to these services to the appropriate level of scale. In 2008, before we had our mobile spay neuter clinic, I was partnered with 14 private practice veterinarians for the work that we were doing at our adoption program. And we had run for eight years, also free spay neuter clinics for feral cats every month. And they had 100 to 120 cats. By 2008, the numbers really hadn't changed much between 2000 to 2008 of the adult cats coming into shelters. Those numbers really weren't changing in Massachusetts. So from my perspective, just spaying and neutering the TNR cats aren't going to move the needle as greatly as you will also by assisting the owned cat population. The owned cat population is where Adam and Eve live. Adam and Eve are owned. They're the ones that are potentially going to lose their housing. And if they're not spayed or neutered, then they're going to end up having kittens and create feral kittens and create feral colonies. So in 2008, we were not assisting the owned cat population before we had the Catmobile We did uh, Friends of Animals certificates, but we weren't doing it to the volume we needed to do. So in my mind in 2008, what I desired or what I established strategically for the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society was really a model of perspective in scale. So at the base of this pyramid, I was looking to spay or neuter 4,000 owned cats. And in the TNR branch, we were doing 1,000 cats a year. And then the rescue and the adoption, we're adopting out 400 cats a year. And then the sanctuary and relocation was a much smaller number, probably under 100. Now, I had come from running a sanctuary. We had a sanctuary where we had over 80 cats there, and it was extremely expensive to run a cat sanctuary. So, you know, I was trying to really put together a strategy that would overall help the needs and the demands of the different levels of the pyramid. By creating the Catmobile program too, the Catmobile program operates, it's a revenue generator and it operates at either a break even or at a little bit of a profit or a little bit of a loss, but it's really a net zero program in terms of the impact on your financials. And so that's another key factor that really came out of developing that Catmobile program and realizing that by assisting the own cat population and getting them spayed and neutered, it's a lower cost to the organization and greater gain to the overall mission. There's a couple of links about the community cat pyramid and how we sort of build it up. And when I did my mentoring program with PetSmart Charities for the organizations with the TNR groups, we would develop like a community cat calculator. So we would take the demographics and the statistics of the community and try and really craft some numbers around these categories. Because we we definitely know we start with this base of assisting owned cats. We move to TNR, trap, neuter, return, return to field. That's reactive to the fact that the owned cat spay, neuter, we didn't get to that population. Rescue and adoption, that's for the most needy cats. You know, the cats that need special assistance. We're building up into levels of reaction and reactive behavior. Sanctuary relocation, I agree, totally necessary, but it's not primary. And so this is the strategy that I work with. I really hope that folks will use this with their board of directors too, to try and help folks understand what we can do if the ultimate goal at the end of the day is to reduce our cat population outside. 
which at the end of the day helps bring peace and wellness with the bird community as well as the wildlife community. I really think and I hope that this is a way to bridge with those communities to understand that we're sort of on the same page. Do you need expert help taming feral kittens for adoption? Watch the Taming Feral Kittens and Cats full-length workshop video now available for free on the Urban Cat League YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com and search Urban Cat League to see all of their videos to benefit community cats. Do you want to make things easier on yourself and the others in your organization? Our friends at Dubert have teamed up with the Dallas Pets Alive and Spay-Neuter Network teams, and together they have created the Companion Case Management Module. It allows you to be more proactive with all your organization's needs, create cases for your clients, and organize them by type. Whether it is a rehoming situation, a pet parent needing food or medical assistance, or simply spay and neuter inquiries, CCM can help you manage all of them right from the Dubert system. Plus, a huge bonus, it allows you to connect with those clients right from the case so there is no need to open up new windows for emails or pull out your phone for text messages. Check it out and learn more at www.dubert.com to get started today. Ever wanted to quickly connect, collaborate, or problem solve with others in the animal welfare field who are, you know, real people? Look no further than Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum brings people of animal welfare together with the common goal to keep more people and pets together. We share ideas, expertise, offer each other support, resources, and more. Visit forum.maddiespetforum.org slash cats. Maddie's Pet Forum. Come for an answer. Stay for the community. So I have had some past experiences with wildlife officials and organizations. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Newburyport, Massachusetts area, we are in like the piping plovers best nesting area. There's the Parker River Refuge and, uh, you know, they have the plover wardens out there and all that kind of stuff. So I've had conversations with U.S. Fish and Wildlife as well as Mass Audubon. And Mass Audubon is different than National Audubon. That's sort of like the same thing like a humane society is they're their own individual entities. So one Audubon's opinion on things is not like the other. So it's best for you to get to know your local wildlife organizations and work from there rather than think it's on a national level. There is a place for national advocacy, but from a, a group starting out, I think it's best for you to get to know your neighbors first. I had a conversation with U.S. Fish and Wildlife a long time ago, but it was, you know, around this plover issue. And I think that the best tact that you can take is an understanding, helping to share the understanding of where our cats come from. Again, I go back to that Adam and Eve. I ran some numbers for U.S. Fish and Wildlife when we were having this conversation about trying to create a buffer zone. So like a, like a five-mile buffer zone away from where the plovers were, and it would be like a cat-free zone. But the problem is within that five-mile zone, there was a lot of transient housing. And I went and I pulled out the numbers of, of the amount of cats that we took in as surrenders from that area on an annual basis and how many of those cats were not spayed and neutered. And I said, if you isolate the group of people that are feeding those cats in that five-mile buffer zone, you tell them they can't feed the community cats that are already ear-tipped and that they're being fed in the feeding stations, you have no chance to monitor those cats that have been abandoned. 
and or getting spay neuter resources to the folks. You know, I was like, well, I can tell you in three years, you're going to have three times as many cats down there as you have right now if those cats aren't assisted and the families aren't assisted and the connections aren't made and you're isolating that group. So what I did was I definitely did some scenario planning to say, if you do this, then this will happen. And they backed off. So, you know, just go in, use your numbers. If you're familiar with that local area, you can totally run predictions and anticipation. And we don't want to isolate from groups. We want to be able to work together. We don't want to burn bridges. And it seemed to work out quite well. I really think the most important component in working with these organizations, too, is that if you are committing to TNR, you are committing to TNR with the goal of 100% sterilization. Just doing half the colony is not going to cut it because they're still going to see what happens when you have a partially sterilized colony. They're going to see kittens. They're going to see fighting. They're going to see all those issues. So Unfortunately or fortunately, you need to commit to 100% sterilization, especially in these potential areas considered buffer zones. Um, we really, I think, need to just move forward on that and make a, an agreement that we understand that we want to get to 100% sterilization. I'm, I'm all for 100% sterilization everywhere, but I also think in terms of prioritizing your spay-neuter appointments and that kind of thing, these areas are where you really need to prioritize and ensure you're doing your best efforts to 100% sterilization for TNR and also in the community of the owners of the cats in that community too. So there's kind of two prongs in that area. So I just wanted to share sort of another initiative. And if you haven't taken a look at this page and heard about this organization, um, this collaborative campaign, I recommend you kind of take a peek at it. So we have the Cat Safe at Home campaign, which is a partnership with the Portland Audubon and the Feral Cat Coalition out in Portland, Oregon. This has been a longstanding partnership and collaborative effort between these two organizations to basically provide peace and wellness amongst the cat community, the bird community and wildlife community. And I have done a couple of interviews and presentations with Bob Salinger and Karen Krauss from Portland Audubon and Feral Cat Coalition. So you can feel free to check those out on the Community Cats podcast. But basically, they do a catio tour. And Bob Salinger has done a lot of research on impacts of feral cats in wildlife areas. And, you know, at the end of the day, the reality is community cats, feral cats usually live in areas where there's people and not in areas where there isn't a lot of housing and that, and that kind of stuff. So you know, if we can do everything in our power to keep cats close to home, that's the best thing for us. If they're not spayed, if you have an owned cat and it's not spayed or neutered and you let the cat out, it's going to go probably a bit farther than if it is spayed or neutered. And I don't know who can live with an unneutered cat either indoors or unspayed either way. So at the end of the day, you know, we want to just get everybody spayed and neutered. In summary, aggressive spay neuter is the key to success in this area. And I really think we are faced with some incredible challenges right now with regards to getting access to that spay neuter. And I think as community cat advocates, as community cat volunteer and trappers, community cat program managers, I think it is our time that we have to create our own solutions around spay neuter. You know, with me back in 2008, the private practice veterinarians just weren't making it happen for us. They just weren't able to handle our volume of spay neuter that we needed in order to make an impact in the community. 
And I'm going to challenge this group to say that as you are looking at your programs and your program growth to please consider adding a managed spay-neuter program within your nonprofit. Unless you have a wonderful relationship with some clinics and veterinarians in your community, um, I think that we need to be nimble and flexible and be able to offer spay-neuter in a variety of different ways. It's almost like going back in time when we were doing MASH-style clinics. We were putting together mobile clinics. We were putting together stationary clinics. We had all these different models. I think we need to rebirth and grow them all because uh, I think we have a lot of population right now. I think we have a lot of people who want to get their cats spayed and neutered, and they just can't get it done. I would love to see TNR organizations start having some conversations about trying to put some resources into developing spay-neuter programs as a revenue generator for them to be able to do their other work. And I'm happy to talk about that as a financial model and business model, because it's sort of like I think of the Boys and Girls Club, where they have revenue generations for the kids that come in, they're serving the mission, but they're also making money by having these memberships and having these programs supported by the community. And I think that that's what our spay neuter programs should look like going forward. So we're not going to fully subsidize them, but we're also going to be able to provide a much greater volume of spay neuter appointments than we are right now. So I'll get off my soapbox, but it is an appropriate soapbox for World Spay Day. I probably have gone longer than I anticipated. So at this point in time, I think if you've got any questions, obviously feel free. Everybody knows how to reach out to me, but if you have questions, feel free to do that. I, that's what I'm here for. You know, obviously we're on social, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. And at this point in time, Bree, as you were scamming on the questions, do you want to turn your mic on? Did you see anything critical? Um, yeah, I definitely saw some good questions come in. Let me hop back up. So kind of skipping back to Newburyport, were the food sources also removed uh, so that no new cats moved in in order to kind of help achieve success there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the vacuum effect. So what we did, with, we had the 14 feeding stations. We would do the whole camera thing to see who was feeding out of the feeding stations before we closed them down. There was no vacuum effect. So the way that Newburyport runs is there's a river on one side and we had Water Street, which is a very busy road, sort of on the other side, and then 113. So there were a lot of busy roads and then we had the water. And so it was pretty encapsulated. So there wasn't a lot of moving. So we didn't have a lot of cats move in. When you start a TNR program and the, and the attrition starts to happen, you will have an uptick. So like when we went into Lowell, we had an uptick of cats or needs and that kind of thing. So you have this like, like uptick and then you'll have a steep dive down. Um, one other thing that happened in Newburyport too, and I'm digressing a little bit from the answer, but I'm going to say this too. We had a fair amount of cats in the early days that were like just dumped in our area because they knew they'd have food, they'd be protected, they were sheltered, all this boat stuff going on and everything. And then our adoption center was considered no kill at the time. And so what we did was changed our language and we became open admission, no kill. So we switched to a service area process. And so instead of people dumping the cats down there, we, we opened our doors and we said we would accept any cats from our service area that were in need. And people then turned to the shelter in a different way than they had before. Yes, but go back the food. After we determined that there were no cats feeding out of that feeding station, 
we did remove the food and and eventually close down the feeding station from that standpoint. So yeah, the food was removed. I'm sure there are people who probably feed wildlife down there, but they weren't using our feeding stations for that. Awesome. Thank you. That was a very good, helpful answer. Um, I have seen a couple questions come in asking a bit more about like the funding for like the community-wide spay-neuter options and how, you know, one question in particular about the Catmobile and then just kind of the free spay-neuter in general. Can you speak any more to how that works? Sure, sure, sure. So there's the capital funding of the Catmobile. So going back, we received a gift to help with funding a spay-neuter initiative back in 2007. And so we did a board retreat and we did a full analysis on like a stationary clinic, a mobile clinic, a voucher system. And what of the three models did we feel worked best for our organization? We went with the mobile clinic. We decided early on against the stationary clinic because we were like, we're on the ocean. And so if you did a like a 60 mile circle around where we were, three quarters of our radius was in the ocean. And at that point in time, our organization was really entrenched in being in the greater Newburyport area. They weren't willing to move to like central Massachusetts to be able to get that radius. So we took that off the table. The vouchers at that point in time, 2007 voucher programs were looked at as being not super successful in the fact that there was a lot of uh, compliance. People would get a voucher, but they'd never use it, right? And so, you know, we didn't really want to spend all that time and effort kind of chasing vouchers. It just wasn't our focus. We wanted to have a program in place to say, you need to get this cat done. And our veterinarians, they just didn't have the capacity for more spay neuter. We had made them really popular with our adoption program, which was pretty active. And they built their client base up. And our first shelter was on top of one of these first veterinarians. And in 2000, you know, they needed us to move out because they needed the extra space. And so, you know, we had to do a campaign to buy a building for the shelter in 2003. And then it took us a few years to get the funding together for the Catmobile. Then after that, the Catmobile itself spun off enough extra revenue and savings that, you know, we were able to do fundraising to fund a second Catmobile. We also got grant money for another Catmobile. It was, it's like piecemeal. You know, you put these pieces together to get enough money for the next Catmobile. And if you have a, a solid business plan from the past, folks realize it's a good investment for sure. And we merged with an organization too that also brought some money to the table for that second Catmobile purchase. And then just last year, the organization bought another Catmobile. So the first Catmobile, unfortunately, has been retired. We have two Catmobiles, but we are dealing with the challenges of staffing issues, staffing shortages. So just like everybody else, but, you know, happy to talk with anybody who's interested in the mobile clinic model and trying to look at it. There definitely, there's challenges and there's successes. There's lots of flexibility. If, if a new clinic moves into a certain town, then we move out and we just go to a different town. So there's just a lot of flexibility and we can go into areas like we can park near a subway stop so that people who don't have access to cars, they can bring their cats on the subway and come and use that. Anything else on the mobile clinic side that I missed there on that? I don't think so. Um, and I know that could probably be a whole presentation <laughs> in and of itself. And so uh, again, please do touch base with Stacey if you have specific questions. But I thought one good one is if you could give like your best advice to someone who's trying to convince someone to neuter their indoor outdoor cat, like what are your lines that work? 
I don't know how anyone can live with an unneutered cat indoors. That's an interesting question. So first and foremost, instead of me telling them, I want to find out what's going to move the needle with them first. So I will go through a rabies vaccine angle, a public health angle, if that seems to work with them. I will go through, is your outdoor cat fighting with another cat angle? So I guess I'd have to say, it's unfortunate for me to say this, I like to know my audience. I want to listen to them first and find out what it is that would be helpful. If, if it's free for them, they're like, hey, it's free. I'll do anything that's free. Or, oh, you know, I need to get a rabies vaccine because it's required by the law or, you know, the cat's fighting or whatever. So I guess it all depends on the scenario and the person and, and what would move the needle on that for that person. Yeah, it takes, sometimes it takes, it's a long game, right? It's not always something you're going to get the first time you walk up to someone. I know one of the things that I heard a lot before was like, bringing them treats, basically, like either bringing them cat food or like bringing the human like cookies or treats or something that they would like, because like baked goods are the way to my heart. I don't know about anyone else out there. But that was a that was a fun tip I picked up along the way myself. Well, and I mean, again, also, it's like you don't want the kittens under your shed, you know, neutering does, it does impact the ability to have because that cat is still going to be protective of their backyard. So they're like, Oh, well, it's a male cat. Well, that neuter cat, their territory is gonna be a little bit less, but they're still going to protect their territory. So if they don't want to have a cat from down the street, having their kittens under the shed too, I mean, maybe that's another angle. I don't, I don't know. I pretty much will say anything to get people to get their cat fixed. I know we talked uh, a lot about birds specifically today, but does kind of what we talked about here apply to other wildlife as well? There's now interesting challenges. I've mentioned this before. When I go in to talk to public officials now, like at Board of Health officials, at least in the New England states where I have talked, first question I get is kind of around rats. I get more questions about rats than I get about cats. Uh, that's another angle you can take as a public health because they provide a rabies barrier. So like, say this person's got young kids. Well, you want to get your cat vaccinated and neutered at that time, but vaccinated against rabies so that if you've got any wild animals in your backyard, meaning the, the littles or whatever, there's a, a barrier from your cats to your family there, you know, a, a level of protection in that indoor outdoor mindset. There's bigger wildlife, you know, there's coyote talk and all that kind of stuff, too. And I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on that. If either Sheila or Mike would like to chime in on any of those topics, I'd be welcome to have them do that. Um, I'm also seeing a couple questions that are more just like general TNR related. I don't know if we want to get into that, but I'll just mention that we do have some great webinars that are available for free to watch. Um, and our TNR workshops coming up, which are great resources as well, which delve into that general colony caretaking and managing and working with neighbors and your community. But uh, this question specifically was angry citizens who would rather just have the cats trapped and removed than dig into that TNR component or managing at all. Yeah. So I never take possession of cats. I just borrow them. So I try to have that. It's not even an option. I don't even have it on the table. Most organizations, it's hard for people to find that option, trap, neuter, and remove. You know, they've obviously put effort in to find you, right? And so they've got a possible option and you've responded. A lot of other places don't. I just would try and walk around that issue and just like make it a non-issue. It's sort of like testing. 
testing for feline leukemia and FIV with a veterinarian. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole 100% today, but what I've always done is just, I'm not going to pay for that service for a cat that's going to be returned. I just, I don't put it out there. Join right in here, Sheila. I do have a response to that because, uh, of course, community relations, you always meet people in your neighborhood, the cat haters, and some of them are just irrational and want you to remove the cats to get them out of there. And a couple of things I tell them. Uh, Number one, if we remove the cats, then you won't have the rat control that now you are enjoying because my colonies were 100% TNR'd and in my neighborhood, about a three or four square block area, colonies kind of scattered. We just didn't have rats because the rats had moved out. So I said, yeah, uh, sure, you know, trap the cats and remove them. Then you're not going to have rat control, number one. Number two, I said, you know, I didn't bring the cats here. The cats were here because there already were food sources here. You know, our area in New York City, it was just wall-to-wall food. And I said, if I take these cats away, which are now neutered and vaccinated, you're going to get a whole nother. I I don't even use the word vacuum effect because that's kind of an insider term. You know, we all know what it means, but other people kind of, you know, so I don't give them anything new to think about. I I just say, look, you know, the cats were already here. I have just returned them. I've trapped them, neutered, vaccinated, and returned them where I already found them because there were food sources or maybe some easy shelter sources. So there are going to be other cats coming in, and we've got adjacent cats all over the city, and the others are going to move in. And then if they say, well, bring in animal control or let's have a city program to eradicate the cats, then I try to remind them, sure, but it's not going to work. And I'll tell you why it's not going to (laughs) work. Because trapping a cat can be hard. There are cats that you trap and it takes five minutes. You just know you're going to get them. Slam dunk. And there was another little cat, a little mama cat. It took me two years to get her in a trap. And I said, you know, even if you have city officials are not officials, but, you know, city people that come out to trap the cat, they'll come out and they'll get whatever they get. Let's say they get 60%. But how many days and nights are they going to come back to do it? It has to be a managed colony because you're showing up every day. You're trapping all the new ones and it's the way it works. That's the way you get it done. City, city employees or animal control they're going to pay these people for a couple of nights and maybe they get 70%. And that, that basically means nothing. I'm going to do a little shout out here to Mike. It's a little bit off topic, but there is a request out there for advice on taming semi-feral cats that are being fostered. Mike, I'm going to, I'd like you to make a pitch for your video. Yes. Uh, Urban Cat League has a YouTube channel. You can just search Urban Cat League on YouTube, or you can search Taming Feral Kittens and Cats. We used to say socializing. It's like what Sheila said about the vacuum effect. In the in our inner circle, we all know what socialization, people think of with a whip and a chair, like you're taming a lion. Um, it's socialization, but we changed up the title, and people seem to now be able to find it. It's on uh, YouTube. We also have a second video about a good strategy for trapping feral kittens. As Sheila said, she spent two years trying to get that mama cat. It's good for everything, actually. It teaches selective trapping techniques, which you can use on any adult cat or any difficult to trap cat. 
but the video is specifically how to make sure you get all the kittens and mom. It's broken down why we do it in the order we do it, the mistakes you do not want to make. You don't want to grab that one kitten that's easy, that's friendly, and mom goes, we can't live here anymore. And she moves kittens and it takes you two weeks to find them. So instead of trying to tame six-week-old kittens, which is a slam dunk, you're trying to trap eight-week-old kittens, which are much more sensitive. If you trap them in the right way, you'll do yourself a huge favor. They'll be so much easier to tame than the dive roll, grab them, throw them in the carrier. They'll be totally freaked out and do yourself a favor and not only tame them in a good way, but trap them in a good way. I guess I have to go on the record. I thought I was a quick speaker and I am not. So I'm glad we took the time for this extra session today. And we are at about an hour. I want to thank Sheila and Mike for joining us. One thing I want to also mention too, that we didn't bring up today is, you know, reach out to your officials before there's a conflict, you know, make friends early. I love making friends. Everybody knows I like making friends. I reach out to people all the time because you just never know. So don't deal with your board of health when there's a conflict going on, introduce yourself ahead of time so you've already made that connection and get endorsements because we had the Chamber of Commerce on our side. We had value, right? If the president of the chamber or the executive director of the chamber supports what we're doing, that gives us validation, right? And Stacy, there's things people don't think about in cities. You have a community board in your little area. You have your council member. You have the precinct that's right near the colony. They have meetings every month. I know everybody's busy with trapping and feeding and all the things to do. But if you put a face at that police precinct meeting and you show up a couple of times or even just introduce yourself, say, hello, thanks for your work. We're actually working with some feral cats. That day that some wingnut goes in and complains and you go in to share the other side, you're a known commodity. Oh, I've seen you at the meetings. Hello. So suddenly you're, you've got cred. I learned this from Sheila. Sheila taught me this one. You have to establish your street cred so that you become the known commodity and they, they trust you because you've been a civic participant yep. and reinforcing their, what they think the way things should go. Daisy, can I, just, can I just mention, and it's not because I want people to look at my website, but if they go to hardhatcats.org, there are videos there. And it really is about what Mike's talking about. It's specific scripts that you say to your community, the anti-cat people, if they want to stop feeding or eradicate or whatever, specific scripts for how to handle people and also kind of insinuate yourself, like Mike was saying, into the community board and the, and the police precinct. So that might be helpful for people that want to know how to work with the community. Excellent. Excellent. Happy World's Bay Day, everybody. Bye. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.